the book of Ruth. So we're going uh, back. Uh, the other day when I was, I, I was like, where, where is Ruth again? And uh, it's right after Judges. So if you're lost like I was, it's right after Judges and right before Samuel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, cause us to treasure it, to love it, uh, to learn more of it, that we might know you, you know, to worship you, rejoice at what you are, have accomplished and continue to do uh, down through history. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to, before we jump into the, to the book of Ruth, we are entering in the final section of Jesus' Bible. So again, we go back to uh, Luke 24, right, where Jesus is walking and he says, everything is written in the law, the prophets, and the writings about me. And he explains to the man on the road to Emmaus. So we're in that last section now, the writings. Uh, remember in the prophets, we had the former prophets and the latter prophets, and we'll see in the writings we have the same thing. But just to kind of summarize where we've been, remember the law, the first five books, the Torah written by Moses, introduced us to who God is, what the creation of humanity, sin, and the means through which God will deal with the sin problem. And it begins with Abraham and then grow, go, go, grows into a whole, whole nation. Uh, that nation, of course, the Lord enters into covenant with. And then the remainder of the law, a, a big portion of it, is detailing how that nation lives in covenant and pleases, pleases the Lord. Then we got into the prophets. And you remember that the prophets, the former prophets, were primarily historical narrative recounting the history of the nation. So from the time they enter the land till their exile from it. Okay. Um, the, the history of the prophets, especially the, the latter prophets then, remember they were commentary on those years of history. So all the, the, the prophets we've been looking at for the last several weeks, they're all commenting on the events of the, of the former prophets. They're explaining why the Lord's bringing judgment. They are uh, also looking forward to the new creation that will be brought in through this Davidic king, Messiah, savior, uh, individual. And of course, they're, they're looking forward to the day when the land is like Eden and the people are restored to it and God's presence dwells with his people again. Because again, that's God's goal. Uh, like we saw in Habakkuk and we saw in Isaiah, the, glo the glory of the Lord will cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the day that we're looking forward to. Okay. Then you also remember from last, well, maybe you won't, but <laughs> in, in case you do, uh, Malachi, you remember, closes nearly 100 years after the people have returned to exile, and it's a really spiritually kind of a dark time. And they're looking forward to, the closing verses of Malachi are looking forward to the one who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, right? And that brings in, uh, ultimately, Jesus. So in Malachi, there was a, a spiritual malaise, would maybe be a good way to, to term it. They, the promised days of restoration that Zechariah and uh, uh, Haggai had promised had not come. Uh, so they're living in the land and all things are not restored to Eden. Things are still kind of, of bleak and dark, okay? Um, and Malachi, you'll remember, they had all those questions where the Lord says, I've loved you. And they say, well, how have you loved us? You know, and, and so the Lord would make a statement and they would respond, well, how have we broken that? Or they're doubting God's, God's love for them. So in many ways, you think about the people have returned to the land after 70 years of exile. They're there now for an extended period of time. You know, generations are, are coming and going. And they're starting to wonder, has the prom are the promises of the Lord really true? Right? Ha is, is the Lord faithful to his word? Sure, we're back in the land, but things aren't any better for us, right? The, the kingdom has not come uh, into its, its full existence. So you can really say the exiles are still in exile, which is a theme the New Testament picks up, right? What does Peter say? Like, you're living as exiles. So we're always exiles until we're in, in the kingdom. So as we jump into the writings, the, the main thing that you want to keep in mind with the writings, so we'll get to what books these are, is that they are the stories and the, the songs, the wisdom of the righteous people all through the history of Israel, Okay. That's, that's kind of, in short, what the, the writings are. Um, the other thing, too, and if you think, remember, um, so you think that context that, 
that uh, Malachi is in, the people still seeming to have progressed very little in walking with the Lord. This is kind of an issue that's been going on for a number of years. You remember uh, Elijah fleeing from Jezebel and he goes down to Mount Sinai and what does he ask? Like he, he's, what, or what is he doing? Right. He's mopey, right? And the Lord comes to him and says, what's, what's wrong? And he says, I alone, I alone am left. And what's the Lord's reply? No, 7,000 7, left that have not bowed the knee to Baal. So what the Lord is saying is that he's always preserving a remnant, right? There's always a remnant of faithful ones. And so again, that's what the writings are. They are the, the writings of the faithful ones. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sinai. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's some uh, neat symbolism connected there for sure. Yeah. So the, the writings, again, we're thinking about the words and the stories of the faithful. So I've, I've summed the writings up this way. They serve to encourage the faithful remnant. Even though the majority of the nation of Israel is rebellious and does not worship Yahweh, the Lord always preserves a remnant. The narratives and the writings serve to show us what faithfulness under the covenant looks like. The poetic writings show us what the heart and life of true worshipers of Yahweh look like. Okay? So the writings are split into two divisions, just like the prophets. You have the former and the latter. Uh, the former are primarily poetic, and so they're commenting, in a sense. The, if you think about even the, the prophets, uh, the latter prophets are poetic, Largely, right? All this imagery and uh, nature language, things like that, that that's poetry uh, and their commentary. So the same thing is happening here. When we get into Psalms and Proverbs, it's largely commentary on what a righteous life looks like. And then the latter writings are largely narrative. Uh, so the former writings, we have Ruth. This is the one exception. It's not poetic. It's narrative. It's the one, the one poetic book. And then we have Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and Lamentations. In the latter writings, uh, they are going to really continue the history from the exile on. So Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah. Those three are all exile, post-exile. And then we get to First and Second Chronicles, and that's going to go back and just kind of review the entire history of, of Israel up to the exile. But as we'll see, it has a very different approach um, to telling the story of the nation of Israel than, say, kings did, okay? Uh, but we'll get there. That'll be the last book that we do. Um, it is kind of I mean, just interesting that the, uh, the, the writings are the inverse of the prophets, whereas the prophets, right, you had narrative, commentary. Here you have commentary, narrative. I don't know why. It's just interesting the way, the way that it is. Um, so the writings contain the stories and writings of the faithful remnant. Uh, there's a quote in here from Dempster. He says, The writings provided guidance to this faithful few still in slavery. Or this is from Jason DeRucci, sorry. Who remained resolute in their confidence that Yahweh was on the throne and would one day right all wrongs through a royal redeemer. Okay? So these are hope-filled narratives. And as we're going to get to Ruth, that's really the book of Ruth. It is a hope-filled uh, narrative. Okay? The poetry and writings, uh, uh, so the Psalms and the Proverbs, especially like the laments, what they're doing is they're asking hard questions of God. Um, they're acknowledging and confessing their sin. They're lamenting the way of the fool. So if you think about you know, a faithful person like David or many of the psalmists after or the words of the Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, they're, they're talking about this is what righteous life looks like and this is a righteous response to sin. So even if you think about what's going on in the nation, they're lamenting the, the sin uh, or, say, the book of Lamentations itself, right? This is a lament over the destruction that has come upon Jerusalem because of, because of sin, okay? Um, Darucci again said this. He said, each book of the writings is dominated by a message of kingdom hope in an all-wise, all-sovereign God who is faithful to his own even in the midst of pain. I put in your notes that... Uh, thing called the writings at a glance. I stole this from Jason DeRucci as well, uh, because all good things are stolen. Uh, and this is kind of his summary. Uh, if you could one sentence each book, uh, which is a challenge to do, but he, he does it. 
so Ruth, you have this prelude affirming the coming, the kingdom hope of Yahweh's redeeming grace through the line of David. Psalms, hope for those submitting to God's kingship through his word, his messiahship and worship. Job, hope for those fearing God for who he is, not for what he gives or takes away. Proverbs, hope for those acting wisely who fear God, turn away from evil and live in the light of the future. Ecclesiastes, hope for those fearing and following God in pleasure and pain despite life's enigmas. Song of Songs, hope for those celebrating human sexuality in the context of marriage. Lamentations, hope for those remaining confident in God's reign and faithfulness to his own. So you see, obviously, he has this theme of hope that dominates what he, how, how he would interpret these. Then Daniel, the latter, the latter narratives, the promise of God's universal kingdom reiterated. Esther, the preservation of God's kingdom people realized. Ezra and Nehemiah, the restoration of God's kingdom people and land foreshadowed. First and second Chronicles, Yahweh's universal kingship and kingdom promises affirmed. Okay? Now, we get to Ruth, and, and so Ruth is placed at the beginning of the writings. There's a couple of different uh, organizations of the Hebrew Bible, but as I understand it, the oldest organization has Ruth at the beginning. And uh, the reason, and there, you could place it in different places. Some people would place Psalms at the beginning, and then Ruth after Proverbs, and they would say, they would interpret the book of Ruth then as a fulfillment of, say, Proverbs 31, right? So here, here is a picture of what, like, the Proverbs 31 woman is. That's an interesting approach. But when you place Ruth at the beginning, especially before the Psalms, which are predominantly written by David, I think what we're supposed to see, and, and we see in the book of Ruth, is that David is the undergirding person that we interpret all of the writings and really much of our Old Testament through, right? David is the key to unlock it, right? Because what is the hope of the nation? It's all bound up in a Davidic descendant. And what is the book of Ruth? Where does it end? David, right? So I think that's kind of the, the point is, is you look at that it, it's setting us up in that way that we really need to see the importance and, and prominence of David. So that's why I've entitled the book of Ruth, David's origin story, right? If you think about uh, an origin story is how did something come about? Well, I think what Ruth is showing us is this is how David came about, okay? Um, I've gave, I put a timeline in your notes if you kind of want to see where the, the book of Ruth lands in the history of Israel. If you can read that, uh, I think mine's the same size as yours, and it's, I have good eyesight, but that, that, <laughs> you might want to take that home and get it underneath a microscope, uh, or just Google, Google a, a timeline and you can kind of, of figure it out. So as I said, Ruth is titled, uh, I've, I, I would call it David's origin story because I think the whole point of the book is David. I, I think Ruth and what goes on is, is subsequent to the themes that are introduced in the book of Ruth and to the prominence of, of David. Um, Think about the, the timing or the initial readers of the book of Ruth. So we don't know exactly when it was written, possibly during the time of David, but you think about the collection of the Old Testament canon would have been somewhere around Ezra's time. So you have the, the faithful remnant back in the land, and they're asking these questions like in Malachi's day, has the Lord, does the Lord love us? Has he forsaken us? Well, here's a collection of writings to assure you he does. And so Ruth really, really helps us uh, to, to understand that, okay? Um, the time of the book, we see in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, right? In the days of the judges. So this is where we're not chronological. We're going back in, in time to that period that we looked at that was so bleak and dark. Uh, the saddest book in the Old Testament, probably, the book of, book of Judges, okay? Um, and that's why I think... Ruth is placed where it is in our English Bibles, right? Because time-wise, it would be right in that judge's time frame right before, before Samuel. But it, it has a different weight when it's placed where it is in the, in the Hebrew Bible, okay? Uh, again, remember the, the moral, and, moral and spiritual condition of the nation of Israel at the time of the judges. What was it? All right, that's how it concludes. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, it concludes with those terrible narratives of the Levite and his concubine and the tribe of Dan, and they're, you know, it's like Sodom and Gomorrah has come to the nation of Israel. <clears throat> so 
That also, when you think about that historical setting, makes the book of Ruth a little bit more like, oh, there was a faithful remnant, right? Because you're, you're reading through Judges and you're like, wipe them out, Lord, you know. Uh, but here you're like, oh, there, there is a faithful, a faithful remnant, okay? We don't know the author of the book either. Uh, it's not, not told to us. So here's the theme and purpose. The book of Ruth serves to instruct those living in exile that their hope is found in a descendant of David and to show what covenant faithfulness looks like, okay? So we're just gonna kind of walk through the book. This is a familiar story and a short book, uh, a really well-written book. I think Ruth and Esther both stand out in that way, I think, in their literary storytellingness. Uh, they're just really well-told stories and you're set up with things that you should be looking for. Uh, that sometimes that's a, a good storyteller, right, is helping you understand the story. And I think Ruth does that well. Uh, the first five books I've entitled A Famine in the Land and A Famine of Husbands, right? So it begins with a, the, a, a family, Elimelech, his wife Naomi, their two sons, Malon and Chilion, and they are of the tribe of Judah. And specifically within that tribe, they're Ephrathites, so that's a, that's a clan within the tribe of Judah. And they come from a specific city, which is well known to us, Bethlehem, right? So that's quite significant, okay? Um, and as you're thinking about uh, the nation of, uh, you know, an initial reader, say you're a, a Jew back in the land in the time of, of Micah, and uh, you're, you're discouraged and you're reading, say like Malachi 5.2, you'd come across a passage, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth as from of old, from ancient of days. And you're like, well, that's kind of cool. And then you're jumping to the book of Ruth next, and look here what you're reading. Well, here comes this family from Bethlehem who are Ephrathites, okay? So they leave, though. They leave the land of Israel. Where do they go? They go to Moab, and there Elimelech dies, and they stay in the, lane, stay in the land, and Naomi's sons, <coughs> uh, Elimelech's boys, they marry wives from Moab. Now, do you remember the history of Israel and the Moabites at all? If you go back to the book of Numbers, they're good friends. <laughs> They, they were, they were good friends in a wrong way, right? Remember uh, Balaam the prophet went and told, uh, he, he was not able to curse Israel. And so he went and told, uh, this is the king of Moab, right? This is how you defeat them. Have your wives intermarry with them. And so there's that terrible scene where they're uh, committing sexually indecent acts with one another. And Phineas the priest runs and stabs the guy and the woman through in the belly in the tabernacle, I think is how, how the whole thing went. Uh, good Bible story to read to our kids at night, um, right? But because of that, right, there was a, like a curse. They were not to marry into the Moabites, and no Moabite could enter even the tabernacle. I think it was until the 10th generation, right? So the Moabites and the Israelites have kind of a, a not a great relationship, should we say, okay? The other thing, if you think about, uh, they're leaving the land because of famine in the time of the judges, the Lord often brought famine upon the land as a form of judgment, right? When, you know, uh, when the, the clouds don't give rain and things like that, Solomon prayed this, may your people turn to you at this temple and you hear them and, and bring uh, rain and do away with, with the famine, okay? But the Lord uses plague and judgment and famine to further his redemptive purposes. So even if you think about uh, Joseph, right, and, and Jacob's family. What was it? It was a famine in the land that brought uh, Jacob, Israel, down to Egypt where they grew into a nation, okay? So the Lord uses these things for his purposes just as he does with, with uh, Ruth. Uh, so they're, they've left the land because of famine. They marry Moabites, which was not the ideal, ideal thing. Um, and then it seems... Uh, seems to imply that it's about after 10 years that they marry these women, and then the story really begins, begins to pick up, okay? Verse 5, both Maholon, Maholon and Chilion died, so Naomi is only there now. She's got these two daughter-in-laws, um, and that's, so a, a big chunk of time happens. These guys all die, and then the story really picks up. So verses 6 through 18, Ruth is determined to go. Naomi hears that the famine is over in Judah, so she's going to go back home. So she tells Naomi and Orpah, hey, stay here. Don't come back with me. She doesn't see. Uh, both ladies are, are reluctant 
to go, but Naomi sees no, no benefit them in them coming with her. Because if you look at like verse 11, she says, can I raise up sons for you, right? I'm too old to have children. And even if I could, are you going to wait around till these sons can, can marry you and bear children? And that's this theme of levirate marriage, which we'll, we'll get to here in just a, in just a minute. Um, and it's interesting. So look at it, Ruth. Uh, like verse 14, they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And then look also over at like verse 17, where Ruth says, if anything but death parts from me. So she is determined <coughs> to go with, with Naomi. And it, it did have, the question came to my mind, like why? Why is she so determined to go? Uh, really, her family is in Moab. She's a Moabite. Why would she go to a, a foreign land? I think it's because we're going to see she's become a true believer of Yahweh, right? She, she really is a, she's a true believer. And by going with Naomi, she's trusting the Lord to provide and care for her. The other thing to think about uh, for Naomi and Ruth going back to the land, land, you have two single women without anyone to provide and care for them going back to a land that is filled with injustice and abuse against women, right? So again, go back to the days of the judges. Not a good time to be a single lady. Uh, that's, that scene where the tribe of Dan is kidnapping girls going out to dance in the fields at Shiloh, right? That's not. You're not going to let your daughter just play out in the street, right? So they're vulnerable, okay? So then we get to chapter 19 through 22. I've entitled this The Return of the Empty. So Naomi is back in the land. She's greeted by women who would have known her, and she announces the hardship she's experienced in Moab by saying, don't call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant one. Rather, call me Mara, bitter one, for the hand of the Lord has been, uh, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me in the death of her husbands and her sons. So you see that in verse 20. It's also interesting, back in 13, she had said this, uh, 113, a similar thing, right? The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And, and so also a question comes to my mind, was Naomi right in saying that? Had the hand of the Lord dealt bitterly with her? Um, Job in Job 27, 1 and 2 says something similar. He says, again, Job took up his discourse and said, as God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter. Um, when we get to Job, we'll see that Job, Job's friends especially had bad retribution theology. They thought that whatever happened happened because of sin. So that's why bad things happened to Job. So maybe Naomi's got some bad retribution theology in that way, right? She, she's thinking the Lord is, is dealing with, with that. Um, it's also Naomi feels kind of like many other Israelites, right? That the Lord has forsaken me. And the whole story of the book of Ruth is going to go on to say, no, he hasn't, right? So these terrible things have befallen you, but the Lord has not forsaken you. So I don't know if, not, yeah, uh, questions that, that come to my, my mind. Then chapter two, we get to Boaz, the hope of Ruth, Naomi, and Elimelech's line. So this is where I think it's interesting. Chapter two, verse one, we're told what to look for. Right Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Okay, we know nothing about Boaz. We know nothing really about why he's introduced at this point, but obviously he's an important person we need to pay attention to because he's introduced to us. Huh? Foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. There we go. Here it comes, okay? Um, I also think it's interesting how Boaz is described as a worthy man. I think that's going to be matched in chapter three, where he calls Ruth a worthy woman, right? We're supposed to see the character of these individuals, their covenant faithfulness. Um, again, you're also thinking in the, the context, the historical context uh, of the time of the judges, there were not many worthy men recorded. So here again, this is significant. Here is the Lord preserving a faithful remnant who are pleasing him. Um, the other thing we need to talk about, because it's introduced here with kind of with Boaz, is that there is a problem that is never explicitly stated, but it is undergirding the entire story of the book of Ruth. And that is that the line of Elimelech faces extinction, right? So, you, you know, even you think about 
And it can happen in, in our, our context, right? That if a, a, a line, a last name could die out, right? And that's kind of what's destined to happen here, right? Because the, the sons that would have perpetuated the name of Elimelech and would have owned that land have died. And so what we're going to get to is, is how the Lord provides for that to not happen, okay? Um, and so that's why in chapter 2, verse 1, we're told how Boaz is related to Elimelech, even though we don't understand the importance of this, right? So it has to do with the preservation of of the line of Elimelech. So Boaz serves three important functions, and uh, this is as close as I can get to alliteration, Aaron, um, and it's at the end of the word, right? So he saves Naomi and Ruth from starvation, from victimization, and from relegation. Is that close enough? I'm rhyming. I'm trying, okay? So here's, here's what we kind of see. Uh, he saves them first from starvation, right? Uh, Ruth volunteers and goes to volunteers to go glean barley from the fields. Um, and this is something that the law provided for um, in, I don't remember what passage it is, but in Leviticus, there's a provision that you should leave a certain amount of the grain behind for people to come by and to glean because they're, they're poor. Um, and notice uh, verse three, right? The, the writer describes it as it was an accident, right? She happened to come upon the field of Boaz. Well, in the sovereignty of God, there's no such thing as accidents, right? This is providential that she would come upon the, the field of, of Boaz. Uh, and I think it's almost, that's almost like humorous, right? Because it's very obvious that it, she didn't just happen, happen upon it, but he writes it in that, in that way, okay? We see in verses five and six, Boaz learns who Ruth is. Uh, so he says to his young man who is in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who is in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Um, and then Boaz is providing for her, so he allows her to glean for the field from the fields. Uh, he wants grain and barley left out there for her. He recognizes she's an honorable woman. So look at verses 11 and 12. She's found refuge under the wings of Yahweh. Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Okay, so uh, she's got a testimony that is being resounded through the land. So he provides for her saves them from starvation, from victimization. Uh, look at uh, the verses, oh, uh, like verse eight, right? Tells her, stay in this field, stay by my young women. And then goes and tells his young men, don't you lay a hand on her. Okay, again, days of the judges, uh, victimization of, of a young, vulnerable woman like this could very well happen, but he protects her. Um, and then also from relegation, okay? Um, and this is the whole issue that's underlying the book, right? This extinction of the line of Elimelech. So we see later on here, uh, verse 20, Naomi finds out that Ruth is gleaning in the field of Boaz. And she says, well, hey, Boaz is a relative of ours, right? He's from the same line of Elimelech. He can redeem the line of Elimelech, right? Uh, look at verse 20. The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Okay, so this is this theme of kinsman redeemer and levirate marriage. Okay, so we need to, to talk about this because it's a really... Crucial point to understand the book. So in, in the society, widows were to be taken care of by male sons. That's the only kind of son you can have. Uh, <laughs> right? Taking care of, I know there's confusion about that. I'm not confused in any way. It's just sometimes I misspeak, right? But they're to be cared for by their sons. So the importance of having sons and then having sons that are alive to take care of you in your old age. So this is, such, this is the problem for Naomi. She doesn't have sons to, to do that. So they, the sons would perpetuate the family name and they inherited the family land. And if you think about the history of the nation of Israel, right? Uh, so much of their history is rooted in name, who they're identified with, and land, 
right? Those things are, are important. Um, so to lose that is, is kind of a, a, a big deal. So it's important that they not be lost. But when, they're, when a line is close to being lost, the Lord provides a remedy through a kinsman redeemer. So kinsman, close relative, redeemer, the one that is able to purchase that back, okay? Um, they would purchase the family line out of loss of relegation or extinction. There are other things that they could do as well. Leviticus 27 says that they could purchase back family members who had sold themselves into slavery. In Numbers 35, they could exact vengeance on murdered relatives. In Leviticus 25, they could make sure that the land belonged to the clan, never left the clan. And the most pertinent to us is the marriage aspect, right? The kinsman redeemer could prevent the name of a dead relative being from being lost to death, and he would do this by performing the role of the brother-in-law. So turn to Deuteronomy 25, and you can just, we'll read this passage, because it will help us understand it a little bit better. Um, what would happen, the brother-in-law would take the wife of the dead brother, have children with her, and the firstborn son of that union would perpetuate the name of the dead man. Okay, so Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 10. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may, na- may not be blotted out in Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull off pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face, and she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house, and the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. That's not a good thing, right? It doesn't make sense to us, but in Israel, you don't want to be the house that had the sandal pulled off, which we will get to a interesting sandal pulling off ceremony in chapter four, okay? So this is this whole concept of redemption that needs to happen. This is who Boaz is, what he is able to do, and the purpose for it, right? To perpetuate the line of, of Elimelech, okay? Right. Well, yeah, we could, we could go there because that, that, that one is interesting, right? Because it's not a normal kinsman redeemer. It's all the other sons weren't doing their job. So she's like, well, I'll take business into my own hands. Uh, so yeah. Right, exactly. They disobeyed, uh, but then she, Jacob wouldn't give her his youngest son, and so she goes and Judah. Sorry, yeah. Thank you. See, I can't, I can't speak. Uh, Judah would not give Tamar his youngest son, so she goes and sleeps with Judah under the guise of a prostitute and has a child with him, who is Perez, who we will get to in just one minute. Okay. Uh, Genesis 38, one of those chapters that you're like, what in the world is this in the Bible for? But it's here. This is bad, so it's here. All right, so chapter three, rest for Ruth in Boaz is what I've entitled this. So um, Naomi and Ruth, Naomi especially has come to the realization that they've been provided for by food with this man who is a potential redeemer. So Naomi moves to see if uh, Boaz will perform this. So she says, may I find rest for you, right? Verse one, uh, Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you, okay? Um, so when she's saying that, she's, she's saying that rest would be a security or a stability with a husband raising a family, right? That's, that's a, a means of protection. It's the means of continuing on this line as the Lord has provided. Um, and even if you go back to chapter one and verse, verses eight and nine, Naomi told Ruth and Orpah, don't come with me. Go back and find rest in the house of your, uh, the house of your, go back to your mother's, find rest in the house of her husband. So there's that idea of stability, safety, security there. Okay. Naomi is seeing it as her responsibility to find a husband and to uh, prepare her daughter or daughter-in-law for marriage. So then she tells Ruth what to do. And it's basically this, go propose to Boaz, 
right? Which, you know, like every guy in the world, I think, would actually like that. You know, like I, if Jenna would ask me to marry her, I, that was, I was so nervous to do that. I would have much rather, not really, but you know, like there's that part of you like, oh, uh, sometime we'll, that's a, that's a story we won't go into tonight, but it's nerve wracking, right? So it'd just be easier because I was like, yeah, I'll say yes. Anyway, so Naomi tells her what to do. And uh, it is, the whole thing of how this works out, it seems, again, very odd, and to me, slightly risque, right? So she tells her, go, go to him at night while he's asleep at, the, at the, the grain press thing there and uncover his feet. This is just getting a little strange, right? So she does this, uh, verse, verse eight. He later on wakes up and he's startled to find a woman lying at his feet, which would be startling, um, And so this leads Ruth in verse nine to say, I am Ruth, your servant, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. So what is going on here? What is being asked for by Ruth? Now, as I was reading, some people think that like there's sexual connotations here, right? And, and that's, that's not what is happening. It's not a euphemism. Um, But yet at the same time, like as, as I was reading through this, I was like, that wouldn't be something I would tell my daughter to do, right? Go to this man at night and uncover his feet and lay there and wait till he wakes up and tells you what to do. Um, but what, what's going on is that, uh, it, well, the Hebrew, for one, is talking about uncovering the, the, the feet in the shin area. That's what it's talking about. That's the, the important thing. Um, in verse, remember back in, in chapter 2 and verse 12, Boaz said to Ruth, uh, may you be blessed and find uh, shelter under the wings of Yahweh. And now she's asking to be taken under the wings of Boaz, essentially. Spread your wings over me. So she's looking for protection, for care uh, from, from Boaz. So uh, Jason DeRucci said this. He said, this usage then is suggesting that Ruth is identifying him as God's means of provision. Right? So this is, this is how the Lord has provided for me through you in you marrying me. So it's interesting, Boaz responds to this, verse, uh, verse 10, right? He's honored by this request, and this shows that he's a worthy man. I think in a lot of ways, going back to chapter 2 and verse 1, he praises her, calls her a worthy woman in verse 11. Again, I think we're supposed to see the righteous character of these individuals. They're doing exactly what the law prescribed. This is how it's supposed to be done, okay? And then he also says... Um, I should have put the verses, verse 10, right? He, he talks about this act of kindness that Ruth has done. So what Boaz is saying here is that what Ruth is doing is an act of kindness. Now, I would think it actually would be the inverse, right? Boaz is performing an act of kindness and marrying Ruth, but he's praising her, her for this. Um, and I think, because he says this is actually the, the second act of kindness that you have done. He says, this act is greater than the first act. Well, I think what he, he might be referencing is back in chapter two and verse 11, where Ruth's act of kindness is seen as her coming back with Naomi, right? She didn't have to do that. Her, her future prospects are really back in Moab, okay? Now, the second act of kindness is that she is willing to perpetuate the name of Elimelech, right? She, again, from being from Moab, wouldn't she rather go and perpetuate the name of a Moabite family than a family that she's not related to by blood other than just being married into and her husband has died? So this is the second act of kindness. Not only that you've come back with Naomi and you're providing for her, but now you're going to perpetuate the name of this family. Okay? So I think that, that's what he's, what he's referring to when he's talking about this is a, a second act of kindness. She had no obligation to do this, but yet she is, she is willing to do this. He also notices uh, that she's not going after other eligible young bachelors, right? Uh, so he's probably a little bit older uh, than, than she is, okay? And then we see in verse 13, there is an obstacle, though. Uh, there is another man who is closer and able to redeem the line of Elimelech than, than Boaz is. So he says, uh, wait here. I will go and see if this other guy wants to redeem you. If he will not do it, I will, I will do it. Okay? And he swears by the Lord in verse 13 that he will. Um, then, just going back to that whole discussion of this seems risque, right? that she's going to him by night. Um, but if you see in verses 14 and 15, the whole, whole thing is set in the context of 
doing what the Lord has commanded. Um, and verses 14 and 15, he cares about, well, both of them care about um, their reputation. So she leaves before anybody can see, uh, for one. And then he also sends her back with more grain, right? So he's still providing and caring for Ruth and for Naomi. And this leads us to chapter 4. In the first 12 verses, and I've called Boaz the worthy man because he's doing this, this thing. So in chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, we'll look at, he goes up to the, the city gate. This is where business would have been conducted. And he gets a hold of this other man who is a closer relative. So he says to her, uh, he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So it's almost like he's like, hey, you can have this land. Okay, great. I'd take that land. But there's a catch, right? You get a wife with a deal. Oh, well, that's, that's a lot bigger commitment than I was initially intending to take on, okay? So this other man, he's, he's willing to redeem it until he finds out that he gets Ruth, um, Perhaps why he initially agrees to to this to redeem the land is that he thought he would get the land and only have to take care of Naomi, right? She's not going to have children. Uh, she'll die, and then I get the land. <clears throat> but if he has uh, children with Ruth, right? Now that child, uh, one, that man's not going to get the land. That child will get the land. And then that child also has right on his other stuff as well, okay? So there's a, a little bit of a comp, competition there, right? That's why he says, lest I impair my own inheritance. So perhaps he's already divided up his estate amongst his children. He doesn't want to bring in another child that could potentially change the picture of that, okay? So basically, marrying Ruth complicates this man's will. So he bows out. Okay. Then this gets to the interesting sandal ceremony, verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Okay. So Deuteronomy 25, you remember, talked about pulling off the sandal and spitting in the face of the one who would not do that. So as I, as I understand it, to take off the sandal is a removal of authority, right? So this redeemer is, is saying, I am removing my authority, my right to redeem, and instead giving it to you, okay? Um, Do you think there's any connection to that with what John did? Oh, Aaron, shh, you're too ahead of me. Stop it. You just ruined where I was going with it. Oh, anyway... That was going to be my big aha moment, right? Jeepers. Aaron, I'm going to have to like, I don't know, muzzle him, right? Right? Yeah. Uh, so anyway, we'll get to that in just a second. Uh, so he's, he's, he, it's, a, it's a, a, an authority thing, um, right? So even going back to the, the sandal ceremony in Deuteronomy 25, right, where they're taking it off, they're like, you've and spitting in his face, it's almost like you're not doing your authority. You're not exercising it properly, okay? Um, there's probably a connection some have suggested even going back to uh, Ruth uncovering Boaz's feet, right? Saying, I, place me under your authority. There's maybe some, some connection here. But this does help us understand Matthew 3.11, right? Where Jesus, uh, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is my dear than I, whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, right? I think that there's very much an authority element that is uh, applied there. John's saying he has no authority over Jesus, okay? So thank you. It didn't have near the weight it was going to be just this. You guys are going to be like, wow, that's really good. I never understood that. And then Aaron had to ruin my surprise. Ugh. He can't come and, you know, no. Or he can come, but he's got to be quiet. 
unless he's going to say stuff that I wasn't planning on saying. Love you, brother. All right, so then we get to uh, verses 9 and 10. There we go. Okay, good, good. Verses 9 and 10. Uh, Boaz, this is what he's committing to do. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And then you see in verses 11 and 12, this blessing that is poured out upon uh, Ruth, may you be like these, uh, you know, matrons of Israel, Rachel, Leah, and Tamar. Uh, okay, uh, so here, um, uh, this is Paul House. He said this, this blessing is showing that Ruth has been accepted as a full member in Israel's covenantal traditions. Okay, and Really, what these blessings are also saying is, may the child of promise be born to you, right? So you think about Rachel and Leah, uh, Jacob's wives, Judah, Tamar, from that line ultimately is going to come the child of promise, right? Who is, who is David? That's exactly what happens, okay? So that gets us to the last uh, section, 13 through 22, Boaz and Ruth, the hope of the nation. The birth of this child that they have together is significant, right? Because this is the grandfather of, of David, okay? Uh, let's see, where do we see that? In verse uh, 17, right? The women in the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David, okay? Um, and then you get in verses 18 through 22, you get a 10-member genealogy, which is like the ones that you see in Genesis that is always tracing the line of promise. So if you go from Adam to Shem, Shem to Abraham, right? Those are 10-member genealogies that are skipping over certain generations, but it's wanting you to see specific individuals. Well, it's doing the same thing here, right? These are important people. This is the line of promise. This is going back all the way to Genesis 3, right? This is the seed of the woman that will crush the seed of the serpent, okay? That's the, the connection that you're meant to, be, to uh, be connected with. And again, it's all messy, right? Like we were talking about earlier, Genesis 38, right? Here's Perez, the, the, the son of Judah and Tamar, that is not like the ideal kinsman redeemer situation, but this is how the Lord has purposed to work, okay? So really, I think in short, the story of Ruth is to be a microcosm of what the Lord will do through the nation of Israel and ultimately through the church, right? So Jim Hamilton says this, Boaz arrives as an unexpected redeemer from the line of Judah who righteously takes a Gentile bride through whom the seed is raised up, right? That's, that's amazing, right? Uh, Nobody expects Boaz to do it. Nobody expects to be the, Ruth the one to perpetuate this line. They, together, the Lord raises up a redeemer through them. You think about what Jesus is, right? He's an unexpected redeemer from the line of Judah who comes and takes a Gentile bride in the church, right? What a, what a fantastic uh, connection, okay? So um, just in conclusion, I, I want to touch on what I think the main themes are because I don't think that the, the story of Ruth is the main theme. It's all of these, these other things that we're meant, we're meant to see. Um, and I'll add one here at the beginning because I don't think I have this. I do. Never mind. So the first one is the kinsman redeemer, right? This is the most important for Christ, Christians, right? Because Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Um, you know, the Bible pictures us as being sold into sin, in the slave market of sin. And what does Jesus do? Redeems us out, purchases us back. Okay, so that's, that's exactly what is happening here with, with Boaz redeeming Ruth. They're sold into relegation and elimination from the line of Israel. And here he comes and purchases them out of this. So Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Secondly, covenantal faithfulness, right? So here is a story of faithful people doing exactly what the law prescribed right? Uh, this is instructive to a nation that has always struggled with this. Israel's struggled with being faithful to the covenant from the very day that they uh, were, uh, became a nation. So here's a story of people who believe God, who do what he says, and they 
are blessed for it. They flourish for it. The nation flourishes. Yes. You, you can. That's a good question. Oh, yeah. That's in Matthew's genealogy. He brings that out. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> it's messy. Yeah. Yeah. It is amazing. It is no accident. It is not an accident in any way. Okay? Good. Covenantal faithfulness. Third, the history of the house of David. So this is the, the origin story, I think, of, the, of David. Um, there is a, a picture here of, of going into exile, being brought back out of exile, just like the nation of Israel, right? They go into exile, and they are brought out of exile. Even, right, in the life of Jesus, we see this in a sense, right? When he goes down to Egypt and comes back out of Egypt, picturing the nation of Israel. All of these things are, are meant to be seen over and over again so that you see this person is the type, this is the antitype, this is what we're, this is what we're looking for. Um. So you think about the David's ancestors going into exile, being brought out of exile. This should be an encouragement. So Jason DeRucci said, just as God was faithful to preserve David's ancestors through a redeemer from Bethlehem, so he would preserve David's descendants through a new redeemer from Bethlehem. What Boaz was for Ruth, the new David would be for the nation and ultimately the world, right? There are just... Like you're seeing the same patterns over and over from the same places, but each time it gets bigger and better, okay? Um, and then finally, God's saving purposes for the nations, right? I think the, the story of Ruth is meant to show like here's the, in like Rahab, here's a prominent Gentile in Jesus's lineage. You can go read uh, Matthew 1, 1 through 6. Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, right? It's interesting there where they're noting the wives, you know, in, in some of these instances, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, right? So there's a prominence that's brought to Gentiles being brought into the line of Jesus. And so, right. Yeah. It is a big, it's, it's significant. And again, this shows the purpose of the nation of Israel, they were never to be this insulated little tribe, right? They were to be a light to the nations and they, they, they failed in, in that. The majority of them missed that point that it was their responsibility to image or to reflect Yahweh in the world to be a light of nations, a light that the nations would stream to, right? And ultimately, that's where all those references we see in the prophets where Zion is lifted up and all the nations are flowing to it, right? That's ultimately the Lord will do and make them into what they could never become on their own. So with the inclusion of Ruth into the house of Israel, her becoming a worshiper of Yahweh, finding refuge under his wings, you see uh, the salvation was never exclusive to the nation of Israel, but was always to Gentiles coming by faith. Okay? So that's the book of Ruth. Any other